Welcome to 2024. With the 2024 election on the horizon, the wars in Gaza and Ukraine, and numerous other foreign policy and domestic news stories, it's never been more important to stay informed. The DSR Network has you covered, with experts across all of these stories, to bring you the analysis and commentary of the stories that matter. Later this month, the DSR Network will introduce the TNR Daily, featuring Greg Sargent, formerly of the Washington Post, and a close friend of the show. Don't miss a moment of our coverage. Become a member of the DSR Network today. Members receive exclusive bonus content, the opportunity to attend DSR live events, a members-only Slack community, an ad-free listening experience, and more. For the month of January, receive 50% off your first year of membership. Visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and enter code DSR2024 at checkout. That's thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and code DSR2024. Thank you for your support. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to Above Average Intelligence. You know, Mark, we've got to work on a new opening for the show that goes with the new title for the show. Um, I'm David Rothkopf. I'm one of the co-hosts. And the Mark I was just talking to is the other co-host, Mark Polymeropoulos, who is, he just told me, because he told me about his grades in college, of above average <laughs> intelligence. Uh, well, you know, I, I think, you know, next next fall, I'm going to do an adjunct professor job. I will announce it shortly at a, at a, at a university. But in doing so, I just send them my college transcripts from Cornell, and it is brutal. First of all, I don't know how I even graduated, um, and it, it's something that my kids are now clamoring for me to show them. But it's uh, above average intelligence is probably something exaggerated when it comes to my college. Nonsense. And I, and I will say to Laura, of course, our guest, I don't, um, I'm upstaging uh, the introduction that I know she went to Penn and I went to Cornell. So these are uh, kind of rival schools. <laughs> well, uh, I'm not that's gonna, okay. Having gone to. Having gone to Columbia, I'm not going to get into that rivalry. Um, although I at least you guys didn't go to Princeton. Yeah, well, let us all let us all be grateful for it, that small blessing. Uh, that voice you hear is Lara Seligman. She's an award-winning journalist who covers the Pentagon for Politico. Her reporting on the military and the defense industry has taken her around the world, from the Middle East to Mongolia, to the backseat of an Air Force Thunderbird. Welcome, Lara. Thank you so much for having me. Well, it's, it's pleasure to have pleasure to have you here, um, uh, elevating the. Uh, IQ of this conversation. Um, uh, we, we, we've got plenty to, to talk about. Um, I, I, I think uh, let's just start with something that's a little newsier. Um, the, uh, the administration in its, you know, uh, expanding Middle East policy 
which it never wanted to have, um, uh, uh, went in and decided to do some isolated strikes against the Houthis. And then a couple days later, more isolated strikes against the Houthis. Then a couple days later, more isolated strikes against the Houthis, and it becomes harder to characterize them as isolated strikes. Most recently, uh, I think it was John Kirby said something to the effect that we could be doing this for an indefinite period of time. How slippery is this slope? I mean, look, we started out with major strikes, like you said, and since then it's been almost every day that we've taken more, they call them self-defense strikes against the Houthis. And these are only on the military target. So for the most part, this past week, you've just seen us, the US striking missiles that we see are being prepared for launch. So they're presenting an imminent threat to freighters and US and Western ships in the Red Sea. But I certainly think this that the administration is preparing for a sustained campaign against the Houthis in Yemen. And it took us enough, it took us long enough to get here, frankly. I think there was a lot of fr- frustration in the first few months after this started to happen, not just in the Red Sea, but also in Iraq and Syria. There's still nearly daily Iranian proxy groups are launching attacks against our troops there. There's been 151 now, I think attacks in Iraq and Syria. So I think there was a lot of frustration within the Pentagon and officials at CENTCOM that the U.S. wasn't doing anything against these attacks. And more recently, that you saw that the U.S. went to great lengths to go obtain a U.N. resolution condemning the Houthis. And this first strike was multinational. It also involved the U.K. as well as the Netherlands and Australia, I believe. So it's obviously designed to send a clear international message that the international community is not going to tolerate these attacks on shipping. But as you said, it has not deterred the Houthis. They haven't stopped at least trying to do these attacks. So I think the administration is in it for the long the long run, unfortunately. President Biden didn't want even one more in the Middle East, and now he has, what, three by now? So uh, I don't think the administration is too happy about that. No, it seems like we've seen this movie before. Um, also, for those of us like me who like popped up and said, "This is nothing like the other strikes of the past. We've learned our lessons, and this is this is going to be the kind of contained thing that keeps things from escalating." Uh, I feel like maybe I've got a little bit of egg on my face um, uh, at this point, but, uh, you know, as a columnist, I'm not supposed to ever admit that I was wrong. Um, uh, uh, Mark, you would never accuse me of being I'm wrong. I'm cackling in the background. Yeah, right. right. <laughs> <laughs> well, you go, you go, Mark, you're never wrong. So, so no, I've, I'm, uh, you know, it's, if you flip a coin and you're right, you know, better than, uh, you're beating the odds. Um, but but Liz, I just want to k- say a quick thing about about Laura is that you know this is someone who you know I, I admire um, greatly, and you know as I have to do commentary uh, in the media as well, I you know I will one of one of the secrets I have you know five or six um, people I follow on Twitter who I will check to see you know what kind of breaking news uh, uh, that that's coming out, and Laura has done that um, for Politico and particularly from the DoD side, and and as she knows, 
I, I'm 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 apt to, uh, to to ping her directly on things that I don't like. So Laura, like, we'll, we'll get to the attackums later on. Laura <laughs> is the puppet master. Everybody knew there was somebody behind. Uh, yeah, she's good. <laughs> it's definitely all me. <laughs> it's all you. So, but, but I think that you know to to jump into the discussion on the Houthis, and it's funny that you know when I think about the Houthis, I think back to a trip I took before the U.S. embassy in Sanaa closed. Um, you know, many moons ago, and I was you know I was I was at the embassy, and some of our officers came back. And they said, hey, there's this group on the street that's getting a little aggressive. Um, and they actually brought me back a poster, a Houthi poster. It's, it was a death to America sign. And I lost it. I wish I had it. If I did have it, I'd be, you know, bringing it on uh, uh, TV. But, um, uh, you know, the, the fact is, I think, you know, we, the U.S. government, U.S. intelligence community knows Yemen pretty well from kind of the ISR, the, the intelligence surveillance reconnaissance flights we flew for a decade plus and our strikes on al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula. But um, is pretty extraordinary now that that uh, we're kind of going at it with the Houthis. But I guess the question for Laura is, what about kind of this the the you know the giant question looming is you know the the who is backing the Houthis? And of course, I'm talking about Iran. And you know, I, I think that clearly the U.S. has signaled um, uh, in as many ways as possible they don't want to see this uh, escalate into a direct conflict with Iran. But we hear reports now that there's Iranian advisors on the ground. Uh, in Yemen, there was an Iranian spy ship that was lurking around. How close do you think that we are uh, to a kind of a direct U.S. strike on an Iranian target, either in Yemen um, or, or or in Iran itself? Well, that's a complicated question. And I do think there's been a lot of signaling in the past, even days, that the U.S. is getting cl- steps closer to blaming Iran for these crises. Yesterday or today, there was an AP story about the top Mideast naval commander, um, uh, I mean, Admiral Cooper is his name, uh, commander of Navsend, he said that Iran is, quote, directly involved in fueling the crisis in the Red Sea. So we know that Iran has been training and supplying and funding the Houthis for a long time. But I think that neither the U.S. nor Iran, frankly, wants to see this escalate into a wider conflict. And I I don't think it's in Iran's interest to get involved. I've been told by many experts that know a lot more about Iran than me that Iran has has three main objectives, and one is the you know continuing the regime, the other is the destruction of the state of Israel, and the third is halting the U.S. military presence in the Middle East. And they know that any kind of more direct attack on the U.S. or any kind of conflict with the U.S. is going to make all those girls hard harder, and it's going to it's going to threaten the regime potentially. So I think they want to stay out of it. But that said, they are continuing to fund not only the Houthis but also Hamas and also um, all these Iranian proxy groups that we see still engaging in attacks, even ballistic missile attacks now in on U.S. troops in Iraq and Syria. So while I don't think an escalation and a direct conflict with Iran is imminent. I, I especially don't think the Biden administration will would take lightly, lightly any kind of strike on Iran. I don't think that's likely at all. I do think there is a risk of miscalculation that, as there always is in these situations, that makes us that makes escalation more likely. I guess the question would be: What if one of these, you know, one of these uh, strikes on, on U.S. naval forces? Uh, in the Ritz, he gets through. Um, what if they sink a ship? Or what if one of these ballistic missile strikes against the U.S. bases in, in Iraq or Syria kills 20 or 30 uh, American servicemen and women? Yeah, um, that. You know, that I think there'll be a lot of pressure 
uh, on on the administration to to react much more harshly. Yes. Is that the sense you get from your contacts in DOD as well? Yes, there definitely will be more pressure, but I think that there is a large spectrum of things that the U.S. can do in between what we're doing now, striking in Yemen, and directly striking Iran. We saw with General Soleimani in the Trump administration, that that was a response, the killing of, of General Soleimani, that was a response to um, the attacks on al-Assad. And we might see something more targeted like that that could happen. But I think it would be very, very unlikely that the U.S. went to war with Iran or did some kind of direct strike on Iran. I think that is not in anybody's interest, even if even if American service members get killed. You know, it strikes me there's a paradox here. And I'm, I'm, I'm wary of asking the question this way because it's open-ended and it could take the rest of the episode to answer. But um, I get the impression from your comments and also from things Mark has said over time that there are a lot of people within the DOD IC world who look at these attacks you referred to in the Middle East on U.S. bases and 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 the subsequent attacks of the Houthis on, on U.S. vessels. And they say, we should have had more deterrence earlier. We, we've got to be doing more. And, um, you know, I attribute this to a bunch of things. Some of it may be their, you know, just their analysis. I'll, I'll, you know, I, I think it's a little ahistorical that that actually works, but let's, let's say that it, it works. Um, but also a lot of these people sort of made their bones in the Middle East. And they, a lot of the people high up in the Pentagon, that's where they sort of learned their trade and where, you know, they've got certain strong views on this. And yet at the same time, and this is where this question gets unwieldy, and so answer any part of it you want. It's the Defense Department that's been the one saying, oh, let's not give these weapons to the Ukrainians. Let's not let this go too far. They can't have our beloved attackums. We have to set these limits. Um, and, and interestingly, it's kind of been the reverse with the State Department and some people in the White House, where the people there who, who sort of wish that we would just get out of the Middle East and get out of that business altogether are the ones that were sort of leaning more into Ukraine. Do you see that as a dichotomy? Does, is that a real dichotomy? And if so, how do you explain it? Um, I think that the Pentagon is filled with many people who have a lot of experience with Iran's malign actions and with the Middle East, as you said. And I think there's a lot more people that are more willing to engage directly in the Middle East and blame Iran for this kind of activity. And I think many in the Pentagon have long studied Russia and been under the impression for a long time, as we all were, that Russia's military was much deadlier than it actually turned out to be, and that President Putin had a much stronger will to do some kind of response and to escalate if provoked. And I think we've seen over time that and we've seen this with the administration's very, I would say, graduated approach, deliberately graduated approach to Ukraine, sort of testing the waters first, maybe some would say too cautious, but but certainly at the beginning of the Ukraine conflict, we didn't know that Russia would not launch a nuclear attack or or invade 
somewhere else, invade Moldova, invade Poland, something like that. So I think I think that the Biden administration has been very cautious with Russia, but I think there there's a, a history that that led them to do that. And I think now it's a very different story where we've started to give them F-16 trainings. We did give them some attackums. We've given them most everything that we have. And now, unfortunately, with Congress stalling on passing the supplemental, it doesn't look like we're going to be able to give them anything anytime soon. But but I think you're right that there's definitely a dichotomy here. But I think it's because they're We've, the U.S. has had such a different experience with the Middle East versus the versus with Russia and the Soviet Union. Yeah, I'm kind of the in, in the same boat as some of the folks in the State Department, which is more aggressive towards Ukraine, less aggressive in the Middle East. Mm-hmm. Mark, on the other hand, is hawkish towards everyone, <laughs> including <laughs> including the University of Pennsylvania, which you'll have to explain that. Uh. But, uh, uh, you know, that's, that's why we balance each other out so much because, uh, he's, he's got this somewhat different view. What you follow, pick, follow up on this. Sure. I mean, this is, a, it's a perfect time to talk about, uh, about Ukraine. I think some of the things that, uh, a lot of us certainly, Laura, you know, my views on this. I think I was, I was, uh, you know, screaming at the top of my lungs, um, both, uh, in public and unfortunately sometimes to you in private, uh, about where were the attackums. Mm-hmm. And I certainly, I apologize, uh, for that, but, um, I think we, you know, we. Are, it, it, uh, I guess the, the 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 question for you is, what's your sense within DOD? You know, is this an inflection point? You know, if this sixty billion dollar aid package doesn't go through, how, in you know, are, are the Ukrainians really in trouble? You know, there's a notion that there's the Europeans might come through in 2025 and beyond, but we have a solid year ahead of us of some really tough times, and and uh, you know, are the Ukrainians really in some danger if? kind of this congressional dysfunction continues. Yeah, I really think they are. And frankly, I'm I'm surprised. I was on a podcast like a month ago, maybe maybe 6 weeks ago, um saying asked asked whether I thought that the supplemental would would pass and I was like, "Oh yeah, definitely. There's definitely support in Congress for this." So I was really surprised. Maybe I'm too much in my Natsec bubble over here, but clearly we're going into an election year and lawmakers are playing to their constituents and the the border is just something that is really underestimated in some of the NATSEC circles in DC that are so siloed. So I think that Ukraine really is in trouble. And I think it sends a really bad message that Biden hasn't been able to get the supplemental passed over the last months and months. And not to mention the fact that we have an election coming up in November, which might get Donald Trump elected again. And that would be really bad news for Ukraine. I think that President Zelensky even spoke to CNN over the weekend, maybe last week, saying that he's worried about what happens if President Trump comes back because he's clearly not going to not going to support Ukraine for much longer. He's always had had an affinity for dictators like Vladimir Putin. So who knows what's going to happen with that? And I think frankly that Europe is afraid of that too, because I don't think that I don't think that Europe can sustain the fight in Ukraine much but certainly not to the extent that the U.S. has and, and not for much longer. All over the world, the defense industrial base has struggled to keep up with the demand for ammunition and weapons and, and air defenses from Ukraine. And without the United States, especially, I just don't see how that can last much longer. Just just one quick a- a addition on the question is, and I, and I don't know the intricacies of uh, kind of, of DOD is there anything more we can do if this aid package doesn't go through, if the $60 billion fails? 
Uh, is there other things that that DOD could do with existing stocks or under some kind of presidential authority? Um, you know, it, it kind of as a last resort. Well, I do think the U.S. is still doing the things that they're able to do, which is the training, right? So that's that's not nothing. They're training the pilots on F-16s. I think they're continuing some infantry training in Germany as well. In terms of providing additional weapons, they are continuing to use um, the USAI funding and delivering some of those, delivering on some of those contracts that they let even a year ago. Some of the the contracts that they let. So that industry could then build those weapons and then ship them to Ukraine. I think they're starting to deliver on some of that. So there is still a, a, a flow of weapons going into Ukraine, just not on the same level of direct PDA from from DOD stocks to Ukraine. That's the fastest way to get there. There's a possibility that in the next budget request, the the president requests some kind of fund for Ukraine or tries to put funding for Ukraine in some kind of new overseas contingency fund account. I think there are things that do the DOD budget folk can can do. They can get creative, but it's not going to be the same as the same speed or the same quantity, frankly, that the PDA has allowed the the president to continue to send aid to Ukraine. Uh, yeah, you know, we've talked about this before on this podcast and on others among our podcasts when, in fact, we had a conversation a week or two ago with uh, General Doug Lute, who was the U.S. ambassador to NATO, uh, in which a bunch of other ideas were floated, one of them uh, being... Uh, an idea that uh, I know has been touted this past week by Bill Browder at Davos, which is seize Russia's assets and use them. Um, and uh, there is some legal authority that suggests that's possible. Lawrence Tribe and others have advocated that. Another is um, to do everything else in our power to remove constraints on the Ukrainians, some of these constraints come from DOD, and these include um, uh, using the weapons however they wish to use them, including reaching into Russia to places from which they are being targeted, and also allowing our allies to provide high-tech weaponry to Ukraine to then be replaced by us to the ally, not by us to Ukraine, because there's a large stock of for example, attack them like missiles uh, out there that could be, uh, uh, or or other U.S. weapons that that are out there that could be transferred to Ukraine from uh, other NATO allies, for example, uh, Japan, Korea. That you know we could then more easily replace directly with them. What kind of appetite, you know, what kind of thinking is going on there now regarding a Plan B? Uh, unfortunately, I think that Ukraine is almost on the back burner here. The Middle East is just taking up so much of the attention right now. And while the defense secretary is, he's hosting a, a Ukraine defense contact group tomorrow, actually virtually. Um, I, I just, I think that the, I think that Europe and other allies are just going to have to bear the responsibility here. I mean, DOD's hands are kind of tied and not only that, but the U.S. and Europe are actually running out of weapons to give Ukraine. There are still, as you mentioned, some attackums like 
missiles that that other countries can send. I think Germany uh, has talked about sending the Taurus missile, but that is that's they they've not Germany in particular has shown no appetite to send those and France I believe is they've gone on record saying that they don't want to send any more of their long range missiles either they don't have any to send so I think we're actually reaching to the point more than two or almost two years into this that that countries are just running out of weapons to send to Ukraine and unfortunately the Ukrainians had a really bad year and did not do well in the counteroffensive. And to to some, it 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 seemed like they did not take the best advice, military advice that was offered to them by the U.S. and by other Allied partners, and and maybe squandered some of that support and squandered some of that ammunition. And and look, like we all know, they are in a very tough fight. But I think that as long as they were in the headlines and doing well, there was a lot of support from the American public to continue to send weapons and send money. But now that they're not anymore, that that and we're going into an election year, I think that support is definitely waning. And I just I just don't think there's the appetite anymore to continue supporting a war that's probably going to go on for a long time. Um yeah, well all I could say is what a catastrophe if the Congress doesn't provide the money, if the support doesn't get to Ukraine. Uh, while the fighting in the Middle East is over some important issues that we can debate, the strategic significance of the fight in the Middle East is much less than the strategic significance of defeating Russia, depleting its army, stopping it from going someplace else where uh, almost certainly U.S. troops on the ground would be required. Uh, But that's just a little editorialization. This is the point in the podcast where we Take a break, and we say to everybody who is listening in, who is not a member, this is the time you should be a member. This is the kind of discussion that makes it worth being a member, and you should go to the dsrnetwork.com, click on membership, $5 a month, and I can tell you that as of March 1st, it won't be $5 a month, so this is a really good time to sign up. And uh, However, if you are a member, uh, you'll be able to listen to this in its entirety, Uh, and get all those benefits. So for now, uh, if you're not a member, bye-bye. And if you are a member, stand by.